This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome to the Sustaining Voices podcast, where Sourcing Journal provides lively discussions about the creative innovations, scalable solutions, and forward-thinking initiatives that are spinning sustainability intent into action. This podcast series is made possible by Cotton Incorporated, a not-for-profit company funded by U.S. cotton producers and importers, and whose mission is to increase the demand and profitability of cotton. Discover what cotton can do. McKinsey and Company has described the COVID-19 pandemic as the black swan of black swan events for the retail industry. And no wonder. Supply chains have faced unprecedented disruptions from sourcing regions that have gone into lockdown. With boarded up stores, depleted footfall, and decreasing appetite for clothing consumption in the wake of a global crisis, brands and retailers are not only wrestling with collapsing revenue, but also mountains of unsold merchandise with few places to go. With brick-and-mortar shopping in limbo, a growing number of companies are even skipping out on rent payments on their pricey real estate. Before the pandemic, stores were already ditching traditional inventory for experiences. Will COVID-19 accelerate these efforts? I'm Jasmine Malik-Chua, sustainability reporter at Sourcing Journal, and today we'll be looking at whether the pandemic is forcing a fundamental rethink in the way people shop, how supply chains can adapt, and if no inventory stores are the retail model of the future. I'm joined by Gregory Schlegel, founder of the Supply Chain Risk Management Consortium, a group of 28 companies that works to identify, assess, mitigate, and manage supply chain risks. And Nikki Baird, Vice President of Retail Innovation at Aptos, a retail enterprise solution provider. Thank you for being here, Gregory and Nikki. So Nikki, Before the pandemic, we saw some companies experiment with showrooms rather than full-fledged stores. When did the idea of no inventory stores first come about and why? You know, I think if you kind of look at store models, uh, you could look back as far as the idea of service merchandise or Argus in the UK as companies where they had kind of that showroom. They had the inventory typically in the back of the store, but just the idea that a consumer wouldn't be picking up the item off the shelf and that that was what they were carrying out the store with them, uh, that's been around for a long time. Uh, I do think some companies were in the process already of reimagining that concept. So like Warby Parker and Bonobos, for example, Bonobos in particular, because as the apparel manufacturer, 
Uh, you know, they were not selling the inventory out of their store locations. It was really only for trial. So I think it was kind of on its way to making a comeback even before the pandemic. Right. Gregory, what are the types of supply chain overhauls that we need to make these no inventory models work? Well, I would say um, to us at the Supply Chain Risk Management Consortium, to answer your question, your first and second question, uh, we'd uh, we'd like to focus on we like to focus on Zara, and I, I think they began uh, about seven years ago. Their demand-driven, short lead time, small lot size, seventeen season go-to-market strategy. That was about seven years ago. They are very good at supply chain performance, excellence, and supply chain risk. They continue to be inside Gartner's top 25 best supply chains for the last five to eight years. And I believe they were number nine out of 25 this year in 2020. So they are in good company, our opinion. And on the experiment and showrooms, uh, before the pandemic, a few companies uh, experimented with uh, this concept, utilizing videos, artificial reality, and much more to provide an enhanced on-site experiential customer environment. We understand that. They were attempting to us to meet the customer's demand where they are at the store and therefore garner maybe maximum sales on site. We're just not so sure it gained traction. So to answer the second question, what do we have to do? Uh, we, we, we think, we feel that, um, that uh, supply chains in the retail arena need to enhance and improve their supply chain visibility. We, we start with that all the time. Most Industries and sectors don't have good supply chain visibility. That means upstream to your suppliers and your tier one, tier two, tier three, and downstream to your customers through the distribution warehouse logistics to the customers. So that's our, our quick uh, answer to both, both questions at the moment. Great. So, Gregory, this is another question for you. Um, you know, the pandemic has brought to the fore two of retail's greatest albatrosses, unsold stock and expensive real estate. Are there lessons that retail can learn from this situation? And do we expect future stores to look very different than what we're used to? Uh, those, those threads are spot on, uh, very much so. Regarding the two albatrosses, first, we'll talk about the apparel industries or the apparel industry and their inventories have been doing nothing but increasing for decades. They're crawling up. I think they were crawling up to about $60 billion at the end of 2019. Subsequently, many on Wall Street have said outright, inventory growth has been the top reason that Wall Street continues to be bearish on apparel, footwear, and accessory sales. So think of it. What other industry starts with a gross margin of 60 to 70 percent and ends up at the end of a season with one or two percent margin? It's really the cost of industries of the sector's inability to manage uncertainty in their supply chain processes. Thus, what? The dreaded markdown. 
We saw estimates uh, in 2018. There were estimates at because the value of retail markdowns were estimated to be about $300 billion in 2018. So one big lesson learned, I, I feel, is, and it's being accelerated by the COVID-19, is the retail supply chain is in need of massive investments in people, flexibility, visibility, and automation to survive, thrive, and become more resilient. On your second uh, albatross, real estate, uh, you bet. As retail apparel moves through COVID-19, bringing this historical inefficiency of supply chain processes along with them, uh, many of the uh, innovative retailers have figured out at the moment how to replicate the offline experience online. The challenge that we see for the sector is now how to replicate the online good experience offline at the stores. So perhaps they'll figure out how to leverage their brick and mortar like some of the big box folks have already during the COVID-19, like Amazon, Walmart, and Target. Through how? How? Through end-to-end supply chain visibility of inventory everywhere in the network and then exceptionally quick, develop exceptionally quick last mile delivery and or store pickup. So that that's our uh, point of view on those two albatrosses. And I would just jump in on that, that, um, you know, I think that you've nailed the the two biggest challenges for sure. Inventory and stores, those are the places where the pain is the greatest right now. Uh, I think one thing that that I would bring to this is that we're seeing a lot more openness to innovation uh, than we have in the past, both in regards to inventory and stores. So, you know, within... Uh, all kinds of supply chains. So broadening our view beyond retail, there's there's long uh, been, um, I would say, more willingness to innovate than we've seen, especially in the apparel supply chain. Um, you know, there's been a lot of, well, we've always done it that way <laughs> in the apparel supply chain. Uh, and I think that the pandemic has really exposed the, the weaknesses it, that exist in the way that we've always done it. So, you know, valuing efficiency over speed, um, you know, muddling along with the limited visibility that uh, that retailers and brands have always had just because the supply chains have been so long. Um, you know, I think that that the realization has now become that flexibility is uh, is far more valuable ultimately than efficiency. And so some things like, um, you know, ordering smaller batches at a time within a greater uh, frequency within a season, um, or back to what Greg was talking about with supply chain visibility, not just having visibility to the inventory at all the points in the supply chain, but even access, the ability to grab that inventory wherever it is, whether that's inventory that you've allocated to wholesale retailer partners and allocating that to your uh, online direct-to-consumer if you need to, or vice versa, tapping into your retail chain and direct-to-consumer um, and allocating that to a wholesaler, to a retailer that or a department store that is is doing a better job moving 
you know, a color or a style better than you are. Um, all that flexibility is becoming much, much more important. Um, I think, though, that while there will always be markdowns, um, one other huge shift that we're seeing is just sort of more openness to the idea that uh, scarcity of product may actually be more valuable in the long term than never stocking out. And I think in the past, we've swung the pendulum too hard towards the idea of never stocking out, you know, that inventory keeps creeping back up. Um, but, you know, I think that the exposure that that creates has really been driven home. And then with stores, it's the same story. There's a lot of innovation where before the pandemic, there was a lot of resistance. So we're seeing dark stores, gray stores, um, you know, full omni-channel use cases like buy online pickup at curbside, even, um, you know, malls where, where buy online pickup in store was, was never really a feasible option uh, the way that people were thinking about it. Now, when that's the primary way that you are only able to deliver goods, all of a sudden, buy online pickup at curbside is becoming a huge priority for retail malls because either people don't want to go inside or they can't go inside. So um, for me, I think with stores, the most important next development here will be how quickly retailers can take some of these hacks that they've made around omni-channel, like just quickly turning on buy online pickup at curbside, um, you know, buying a, a Home Depot bucket, filling it with cement and a post and stapling a sign to it um, and turning that into something that is scalable and even more importantly, profitable going forward. Right. So I wanted to cycle back to the idea of inventoryless stores. A number of these stores, you know, focus on experiential retail or retail tainment to pump up value, brand value and hopefully conversion to actual sales. But obviously with pandemics, such avenues, you know, are a no-no. Are there other shortfalls to the no inventory model, both in the immediate and the long term? And do we see uh, shoppers leaving browsing behind? So I'll grab the the second part of that question. Do we see shoppers leaving browsing behind? So in the short term, yes. Uh, you know, there's a much larger portion of the population in the world who believes that that is a, a risky activity from a personal health perspective that um, the payoff is just not worth taking that risk. Um, and I think this is one area where it's very difficult for online to compensate. So um, we're seeing retailers introducing things like live streaming or in-store video chats where they're making the store associate um, available as an expert. And they're, they're taking, again, almost back to this showroom idea, they're taking a product and then they're demonstrating it or moving it or um, taking it into different kinds of light to show somebody who's watching at home. Um, what that product looks like. Um, but I do think that um, it's not a fully permanent behavior. So um, I do think consumers will mark the day when they can go into a store and just browse and not even go with a purpose of buying, but just kind of that entertainment factor. Um, I think they'll mark that as a day when we sort of quote unquote return to normal. Um, but, and, and, Retail really has no choice but to find ways to increase their value to customers as a lifestyle or product expert or a guide. And so even though retailtainment is is a no-no today, I just there's no future for stores, um, whether there's inventory there or not, there's no future for stores without that 
aspect of entertainment or expertise or, um, you know, some kind of guidance or participation um, interaction that they can have with consumers. So we'll, we'll get back to that at some point. Yeah. Gregory, did you want to add anything to that? No, I think Nikki, uh, Nikki articulated it uh, pretty well. Uh, we, have, we have really nothing to add. I think she's spot on. Uh, too early to call, but uh, just remember, uh, I think she was talking about the human condition. Yeah. The, hum- the human condition wants to, to browse, shop, touch. That's kind of the definition of shopping. So uh, well, well, uh, well said. Yeah. So now, Gregory, with the pandemic, we've seen e-commerce become more important than before. Are there any supply chain changes companies will need to make to better align themselves with selling online? Yeah, this is a uh, th- this we could write a book on. <laughs> There's so much to do and so little time. But I, I we have some threads and we'd like to share share those threads uh, with with the audience. Uh, first, some have already made compelling changes to their entire uh, supply chain, especially starting with Zara. We've done work with Zara. They're the exemplar. Uh, they've spent millions of dollars to upgrade their age-old IT systems in the past, the last couple of years, and now constantly communicate with their customers via phone, texting, and actually using what we call NLP, natural language programming, which talks to the customer to inform the customers every day what is in the supply pipeline, when these products will be in the stores, and what stores will have the products and the prices. And they also use what we call VOC, the voice of the customer, in terms of capturing likes and dislikes throughout the constant communication during and inside their supply chain. And we call this sense and respond type of supply chain, driven by the customer. Others, other than Zara, will have to upgrade their supply chain, especially their IT solutions and processes, starting at the customer, just like Zara did, all right? And then moving all the way through to their suppliers to improve their supply chain visibility, which we talked about. And like Zara, there are other exemplars out there as well. The IBMs, the Flextronics, P&G, Walmart, Target, they've done the same thing. They've increased their visibility starting from the customer all the way through to the supplier's suppliers. They have digitized their supply chains and they're developing what we call supply chain control centers or supply chain war rooms where they're monitoring their entire end-to-end supply chain 24-7 from what we would call a center of excellence. So perhaps even go as far as Stitch Fit has gone, they utilize AI, artificial intelligence, and what we call ML, machine language, algorithms, to do what? To gather personal traits and purchasing proclivities, we call them, of individual consumers. To do what? To forecast what they might buy in the upcoming weeks. They then send those customers those products that they projected, and then they allow the customer a free return. They keep two, send three back. That exemplifies to us 
sense and respond supply chain, but it also includes a level of risk that you have to accept. And finally, I'll focus again on in the supply chain, it's called the last mile delivery. Nikki talked a little bit about it. Got to get innovative. All right. Thriving apparel companies to us will have to figure out how to leverage their stores as potential store pickups like Zara has been doing and others improve their end-to-end inventory visibility like Walmart and Target have done and develop quicker, more efficient and effective last mile deliveries. And Nikki uh, touched on a few of those and there'll probably be more. So that's kind of our a couple of our threads uh, that we see have to be embraced uh, in the uh, in the retail sector supply chain. Yeah, and there's one one area uh, that Greg didn't touch on that I would bring up, which is um, just the environmental impact and sustainability considerations. Um, whether you want to call that kind of a direct outcome of the pandemic or an acceleration of a trend that was already in play, consumer awareness of the environmental impact of supply chain decisions, whether that's uh, in the pile of cardboard boxes that they have um, piling up in their recycling uh, storage or uh, just, you know, the awareness that of, of how fragile our ecosystem is because of our sort of personal exposure to the pandemic. Uh, we've just seen that consumers are acutely aware of the environmental impact of um, the decisions that they make in the products that they buy. And so uh, I totally agree. There's a massive amount of reinvestment and upgrading that's needed in supply chain to really cope with a lot of the changes that we're seeing from the shift to e-commerce, from the shift in where you can source just based off of um, pandemic spread even. Um, and and as companies are making that investment, they really need to keep uh, environmental awareness or sustainability concerns also top in mind, top of mind, because they don't want to have to go back and redo that after they've already made these investments. This is a really good time to keep those considerations high as well. Yeah, wonderful. So, Gregory, how? else do you expect the pandemic to alter the clothing supply chain, either to trim the fat or guard against shakeups and disruptions? I know we still have climate change to contend with. So what else do we need to do? Well, uh, we've touched on many challenges and some possible improvements to the apparel supply chain. I'd like to end with, uh, with this. A recent study by uh, the University of Warwick on how retailers have responded to COVID-19. This was about 120 retailers in Europe, Asia, and the Americas. Uh, I thought it was pretty compelling, pretty interesting. Wanted to share that with with your audience. Uh, The question, one of the big questions in the survey was, what has proven to be the most effective strategies for your supply chain dealing with the COVID-19 pandemic? And this was all retailers across Europe Americas and Asia. Here's the top five. 61% of the respondents said specific inventory strategies to buffer against disruptions were quite effective. 50, next one, second, 51% said multi-sourcing of key products to reduce dependency on specific suppliers 
has been very effective. Third, 47% said visibility across the entire supply chain network has been very, very effective for us. The fourth, 38% of the respondents said they've implemented new supply chain risk management tools and techniques. That's music to our ears as evangelists in supply chain risk management. And the fifth was 29% said more reliance on suppliers with agile production systems and distributed networks in terms of agility and flexibility. So I wanted to share those top five strategies that seem to have been very effective so far, specifically for retailers during the COVID-19 pandemic. And I think from my perspective, um, I'm, I'm going to be interested to see just how much impact brands like Gucci and Armani will have in the market in the long term. Um, they've both come out with some pretty impassioned statements about how this is an opportunity to actually slow down the fashion cycle, you know, that that fast fashion and abundance of product are not only expensive to maintain over time, but they're also wasteful. Um, you, you know, we saw a lot of retailers swear that they would never get themselves into the situation that they found themselves during the financial crisis where, uh, you know, demand also came to something of a of an almost complete halt uh, and then took its time to get back up during a time of financial uncertainty for consumers. And the pandemic is definitely, you know, faster, sharper, deeper from that perspective. But, you know, coming out of the financial crisis, we heard a lot of retailers who swore, you know, I'm never going to let my inventory get back up to that level again. And I'm going to be much more disciplined and not have to take quite so many markdowns. I'm going to, you know, get more volume of full price sell through or, you know, limit the addiction consumers have to promotions. Uh, but as Greg pointed out, we're, we're kind of right back where we were um, in terms of inventory discipline or lack thereof uh, as the pandemic hit. So, you know, Gucci and Armani both were sort of taking a position of, um, you know, this isn't just about um, I'll use a personal analogy. This isn't just going on a diet, right? This isn't like, oh, I just need to slim down my inventory levels and then I'm going to be good. They're sort of proposing um, an inventory lifestyle change, if you will, um, where they are relying more on scarcity. Now, I know they're luxury retailers and scarcity is an important part of the luxury um, kind of business model and less so for fast fashion. But I think when you combine um, just the pressure on, you know, the real estate and the amount of stores that we need to have um, and inventory levels and how much we could save if we could significantly reduce, if not eliminate that inventory level in stores. Uh, and then, you know, a less reliance on promotion, uh, less reliance on markdown. You know, this is an opportunity to change the way that the apparel industry operates. And it will be really interesting to see if, they kind of take up that challenge or just go back to their old ways. Yeah, absolutely. So this is my final question. Uh, first, let's start with Nikki. Um, will the way people shop change after we emerge on the other side of this crisis? And should it change? Yeah, this is the multi-trillion dollar question, I think, uh, to ask is, is how much will consumer behavior change? And um, I think you have to look at a couple things. So one, 
on, you know, the seeds of the responses or shifts in behavior that we saw during the pandemic, they were already there. Uh, Omnichannel was already a thing. Uh, consumers were already exploring more and more and had higher expectations more and more for things like home delivery or starting their shopping journey online and maybe only finishing it in or near the store. Um, so, you know, some of those shifts were a direct response to the pandemic, you know, Curbside was not something that I thought I would see well beyond grocery, and yet here we are. Um, and I think once consumers experience something, it's really hard to take it away. So, like, I think buy online, pick up at curbside is going to be here to stay. I don't think it's going to be the volume of activity that we've seen, um, you know, during pandemic times. But I, I think consumers will have an expectation that that's something that will always be accessible to them. Um, you know, and then I think the the question of, you know, should people's behavior change? Um, I think that's an interesting one. I think um, retailers have to be careful in in believing or assuming that they can control the way that consumers shop. Um, that's another thing that was already a trend before the pandemic was retailers were losing control over the way that consumers shop. Consumers much more dictate how they want to engage with brands and retailers. And digital is a much bigger component of it than it ever was before, even before the pandemic. So, um, you know, I think the lesson that retailers and brands need to take away, most importantly of all, is that you have to respond to the consumer. They have expectations that you need to be able to meet. Uh, and, and it's not yours to control how they're going to engage with you. And if you can internalize that and be super responsive to that consumer, then you're going to be positioned to win, <laughs> is, is my personal opinion on that matter. Gregory, would you like to add your final words as well? Yeah, uh, Nikki, uh, Nikki's spot on. She hit it uh, right on the nose. Uh, consumers are now driving the retail bus. It's been coming along for a long time. We would agree with Nikki, but it, it's just readily apparent right now. Uh, and our two, our two threads would be this. We believe online will grow in terms of volume and sophistication. It will become, as Nikki mentioned, another customer-facing channel, even buy online, pick up at curb. Uh, there's going to be multiple derivations thereof. We agree it's going to be a new customer-facing channel. And it's going to force retailers to support that, those channels via new supply chain innovations. So that's one thread. The other thread, uh, will the classic approach to apparel shopping totally transform? We're not so sure because customers in the human condition will still yearn. We feel it, the human condition will still yearn for some type of shopping, touching, getting out experience. Whatever that will transform into, we think it's still going to be prevalent. Just don't know, uh, you know, in terms of how, uh, how it will morph uh, going forward. Yeah, so we're just going to have to wait and see. Thank you both for joining us today. This podcast episode is a companion to Sustaining Voices which Sourcing Journal created in collaboration with Cotton Incorporated as a celebration of the efforts the apparel industry is making towards securing a more environmentally responsible future through creative innovations, scalable solutions, and forward-thinking initiatives that are spinning intent into action. Learn more at SustainingVoices.com. Music